Hi, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Stranova, a bi-weekly audio business program exploring the intersection of cutting-edge business strategy and the innovations that can ignite business growth. As an entrepreneur with over 30 years experience leading high-tech organizations, I've constantly sought out new ideas that could take business to an entirely new level of performance. For Stranova, I've invited some of the most innovative business leaders out there and asked them to share their ideas with you. So sit back, listen, and consider what some of these new thoughts might mean to your business as we begin this week's episode of Stranova. On December 26, 2004, at just before 8 a.m. local time, an undersea earthquake known in the scientific world as the Sumatra Andaman event let loose at an estimated strength of between 9.1 and 9.3 on the Richter scale. As the second most powerful earthquake ever recorded on a seismograph, within moments it launched a series of tsunamis that eventually killed an estimated over 229,000 people in Indonesia, Sri Lanka, India, Thailand, and other countries. My guess is that every one of us listening to this podcast was affected in some way by that event, either simply because of the horror we all felt watching the events on television or via the internet, or reading further about them as we learn more about the devastation. Because we knew someone either in the midst of the disaster or helping others there afterwards, or because we ourselves donated money or assistance personally to try to make a difference. We here in the United States are still working out what to do about the incredible tragedy Hurricane Katrina created in Louisiana and its sister states, and Australians are dealing with the massive destruction left in the wake of Cyclone Larry, which struck the Queensland coast with the equivalent of Category 5 hurricane winds on March 20, 2006. Though the survivors from each of these disasters are now finally beginning to dig out of what happened to them and begin to reconstruct their lives, many are now wondering both if this might happen to them, and perhaps even further, how could global monitoring and prediction systems perhaps help us minimize loss to life and potentially property as well. One group that set out to make a difference in this area is the Group on Earth Observations through its System of Systems that has the massive goal of integrating much of the world's ground-based, water-based, airborne, and satellite Earth monitoring systems to monitor the Earth's vital signs on a real-time basis and to guide a more accurate predictive model that can help give a longer-term advance warning to all of us about changes in our environment. As of this writing, there are over 60 countries and over 40 international agencies working together to make this happen. At the lead of this consortium is our guest this week, retired Vice Admiral Conrad R. Lautenbacher, who currently serves as the U.S. Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere and as the Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. As leader of NOAA, he manages an agency comprised of the National Environmental, Satellite Data and Information Services, the National Marine Fisheries Service, the National Ocean Service, the National Weather Service, Oceanica and Atmospheric Research, Marine and Aviation Operations, and the NOAA Corps. Vice Admiral Lautenbacher has a distinguished career, including 40 years as a senior leader and strategist in the U.S. Navy, including direction of Navy planning in Desert Storm, as an entrepreneur who ran his own strategic management consulting business, and a visionary in the strategic implementation of information technology for the Navy and NOAA. 
He holds an MS and PhD in Applied Mathematics from Harvard University. We are very pleased to have him as our guest this week on Stranova. Vice Admiral Lautenbacher, welcome to Stranova. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be with you today. Well, a logical very first question here would be if you could tell us a little bit about the Global Earth Observation Systems of Systems and what the group involved with it hopes to accomplish with that overall system architecture. You've asked a rather large question because this is a large concept. It's a huge concept. It's about wiring the world and providing information to people around the world to improve their economic standards, their standards of living, understanding of things from weather, disasters, all the way to health. So it's a large effort to be able to understand what's going on on this planet, not the rest of the solar system, but where we're living today and where we're going to be living for a long period of time. It involves now 60 countries in a group called GEO, the Group on Earth Observations, has 43 international organizations involved in it, and those groups have agreed on a 10-year plan to implement a global Earth observing system of systems, which is a collection of satellites and buoys in the water and observing stations on land in the ocean that combine together to provide a running diagnostic or basically a continuous MRI of the Earth and provide it to scientists as well as policymakers and individual citizens around the world so they can understand what's going on on their planet and predict the future with it. Well, it's a good introductory summary, and I will have some references on our website for people to look at, including your 10-year plan. For the purposes of this group, which is strategic innovators in business, and many of them even are in the computer industry, could you give us some ideas of some of the types of systems and interoperability issues that you expect to have in order to be able to link all the system together? It covers the wide range of technologies that obviously we use today. First of all, people should understand that it is an information system. So while we have marvelous technology in satellite with new instruments and in deep water buoys and seismographs and various types of chemical and biological monitoring instruments, a wide variety of detection capabilities are needed. We are essentially talking about information. So we need huge networks, we need ways to move the data, we need the interoperability, uh, we need standards and protocols that will help us uh, marry not only different data sets from different parts of the world, but whole different taxonomies that exist today between, say, medical databases and weather databases. So there's a significant number of issues to be worked on internationally, and it, it should be a fascinating project from a technological point of view. Well, that actually leads very much into my next question, which, of course, you are very familiar with what it takes to run large organizations. At the same time, this particular project with the Group on Earth Observations is probably even more challenging than herding cats. One of the more amazing things to me in particular is that this is truly global and truly nonpartisan, literally all over the world. So I'm just wondering, how did that widespread commitment to doing this come to pass, and how do you go about managing that kind of an enterprise? That's a very good question, obviously, and I will have to say that while the technological problems are fascinating and some of them are very challenging, really you have hit on the key issue, and that is 
the personal politics and international politics and organizational issues of bringing together a wide variety of different nations, different ideas and cultures and values and business models. So this is a large issue. Now, it came about because of all the work that's gone on with the World Summits on Sustainable Development. And uh, from the most recent one in Johannesburg a few years back, if you go and look at the documentation from that, you will find that almost everything that we need to do to help the world increase its ability to support itself and improve standards of living is all based on observing systems and providing information. Every piece of it, from energy to water to sustainable agriculture, depends on this understanding of the earth. So it came out as a major recommendation from the World Summit. It was then picked up by the G8 nations as one of the three major science initiatives that the G8 should be involved in. And the United States then began the process by hosting the first World Summit on Earth Observation. And we held that in July of 2003. We are now here two and a half years later after having three summits, the second one hosted by Japan, the third one hosted by the European Union with this large organization. And it is, as you mentioned, a bipartisan, non- or apolitical type of organization. There's benefit for everyone. We're not here to tell people what their political decisions and political views ought to be. We're here to provide the information that will allow them to make the best possible decisions based on the science. Well, and let's take maybe as one specific detail that I don't mean to overwhelm the conversation, but as an example of one of the management problems, we've talked just briefly about the interoperability issues and in even something as simple as an MP3 player, interoperability is somewhat of a challenge. In this particular case, you have a much more complex situation. Is there a steering committee or group that typically is trying to come up with those standards? Do you have multiple corporations involved? I'm just curious about how that's being attacked strategically. Well, we have in the International Geo, as it's called, four standing committees, data and architecture, user involvement, capacity building, and particularly I want to mention the data and architecture. That's a very important committee and has a number of the leading technological nations on board with people working on projects. We have a work plan. The work plan for the first year has over 100 tasks in it. Those tasks are being taken aboard by the, the members of each of the committees, each of these four standing committees. And there's a fifth that's working on the tsunami warning system for the world because that's uh, such an important issue at this point. But those uh, committees are working on a very you know, task-oriented process taken from the reference document that goes with the 10-year uh, implementation plan. But there's very specific work that's going on in, in this area based on the agreement that was made in the Free Earth Observing Summit. It certainly sounds like the process of summit subcommittees and all is working well in this early stage of the 10-year the plan rolling out. The plan for the audience's benefit here was agreed upon in Brussels in February 2005, if I have that correct. And I do have a link to it on our website so that people will be able to take a look at that. The question I had that actually relates to exactly what you're talking about here is I had heard from actually an earlier guest on our program, Professor Joanne Grabenowitz at the University of Mississippi Space Law Center, that the GEOS effort truly kicked into high gear shortly after the horrific tsunami that spread through Southeast Asia, in part because it was felt that perhaps some of this might have made it possible to save lives and perhaps property as well. What do you see as the vision of what GEOS might have helped prevent as well as what it might make possible in the future 
as more and more of the long-term vision for GEOS is put in place? Well, the agreement is based on nine benefit areas, and one of those benefits is our warning and mitigation of natural and perhaps man-made disasters. But the issue of protecting people, saving lives, and protecting property is a huge one. It unites people around the world in a vision. So something like that tsunami was an extraordinary event that brought a great deal of public attention to the need to provide adequate warning. The GEO group set up a special committee to help the organizations that were designated by the United Nations to provide warning for the citizens of the world. And those organizations already happened to be members of GEO, so it was a very nice, convenient setup for the start of something, I think, very important for the GEO organization to help and to provide the, the resources and the facilitization for the IOC, the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission, and the World Meteorological Organization, as well as the disaster reduction folks to work together to build a system. And that work goes on today with the facilitation from the GEO group. If you had a system in place before that tsunami, I think you could have easily saved 200,000 lives from just a simple warning system. Not that expensive in terms of technology, but priceless in terms of its ability to save lives. For the benefit of our listeners, I believe that there are some systems in place that will help deal with potential tsunamis hitting the United States right now that do, do provide some advance warning. Is that correct through the systems that are out there? Absolutely. The United States actually has had a warning system in place since the 1950s based on some of the tsunamis that occurred in the 40s. And we have been gradually improving the technology. So the Pacific was actually covered with for warning at the time of that tsunami. But unfortunately, the Indian Ocean had none of that technology in place, nor does the rest of the world. We are today, however, working on setting up a system in the Atlantic as well. The risk is not as high in the Atlantic, but in the next month, we'll be putting five deep water dark buoys, they're called, into our Caribbean and the Atlantic Ocean to help protect this side of the world as well. And we'll be providing uh, buoys around the entire rim of the Pacific, hooked to a real-time reporting from tide gauges, as well as the seismometer networks that are in place around the world. It gives us protection in the Pacific right now. We have a reporting system in the Atlantic, and we're looking to put buoys in the water in the Indian Ocean very shortly. Certainly a very impressive set of things that are beginning to be rolled out. And again, just as a reminder for all of us that even though Vice Admiral Lautenbacher is clearly from the United States group, this is absolutely an international effort. And those of you listening to this throughout the world definitely may be interested in connecting in with your own local communities and organizations that are participating in this consortium. That actually leads into a next question here in that considering that our interview is somewhat unique in that, unlike most radio and media, it will be listened to strategic leaders literally on every continent except Antarctica. We haven't reached them yet. I'm wondering what kind of messages you might want them to take with them from this interview, either in terms of support that they might want to encourage from their own organizations or perhaps ways they could get involved. I think that's a good question. Everyone that's in this organization are certainly anxious for it to expand beyond the 60 nations that are already involved. I think obviously every nation in the world should be part of it. It does not cost anything to join. It's non-binding in a sense that you're not signing a treaty. And its benefits are many and will continue to increase as the size of the organization grows. 
So it's, I think, would be important for people to think about joining it from their countries. Now, something we didn't talk about a little earlier, you asked the question of what about the private industry and other groups. We have in the United States something called the Alliance for Earth Observation, which is an industry organization set up to help work on the technology, the instrumentation, and provide for user need for benefits, providing information and products that would help people to use the information both for improving industry and private applications, NGOs, and of course the government is, is deeply involved. So I, I think people should look at it from a multi-dimensional area. This is not just a government initiative. This is an initiative that serves all of the needs of the world and will be very important to private industry as well as other groups. You've hit on something too that I think is very important to both the audience in the listening area here as well as just for the world as a whole that part of what is unique about this is that at the same time that it is helping the earth a great deal there are business opportunities that will emerge from being able to innovate with new ideas new innovations in how to interconnect and even enhance the usability of all the data that is involved in this effort i was just going to say an example for the audience is to take a look at the way the weather industry works in the United States. Remember, the weather industry in the United States is both a public and a private venture. So there are many services that are provided by the government, which are public common good types of things, like operating the satellite system, operating uh, weather forecasting, general weather forecasting. And then there are many private sector opportunities that have been spawned from public good weather sector, such as the uh, AccuWeather and Weather Channel and places where they take our information and provide it in a tailored format to citizens and businesses that fly airplanes and drive trucks and all the transportation issues we have at sea. Those types of things are provided by the private industry. So this is an interesting case where it really is something that every part of the system is a really critical path. It's not something where the government hands things out. It's not something where industry can do it on its own, because literally there are costs and complexities that couldn't possibly be managed by an individual corporation. Even though maybe Google might want to think otherwise, it's, it's going to be difficult to do. One specific question in this, and you gave a good example in there, what kinds of innovations are you looking to leverage that would tend to enable the long-term vision of the Group on Earth observations? We're looking for basically trying to fill in the gaps that we have today. And part of it is looking at the satellite systems that we have. Can they be improved? Looking at the completion of networks in the ocean and certainly the land where we live and, and need to have a much better understanding. So detection devices are very important. Physical sensors have been highly developed over the years. I think most people listening understand those types of things, the temperature and pressure and physical parameters. But chemical sensors are coming along, but that's important to understand what's going on in our atmosphere. Certainly people understand the need for air quality. And then the idea of biological sensors. How do we develop biological sensors? And this goes directly to the health issue, tracking diseases. How do we track bird flu? It's a large-scale global earth observing type of problem. And then it all comes together with the communications network and and data processing. This is a distributed system, so we're not talking about having some central command post in the middle of the earth or in somebody's homeland. We're talking about a distributed network where information can be moved quickly and where it can be processed to different levels at various places around the world and then provided 
in the right format to people who need to use it, both corporations and governments, to make the proper decisions. I admire the overall scope of what has been attempted here. One thing that I am curious about, I've read a little bit of your own background in all this, and it is obviously very widespread and certainly a very distinguished career. For the purposes of our audience, I'm curious about what might have brought you to the desire to lead this kind of effort in your own background, what you could share with us. Probably several things. First of all, most people know that I've had a 40-year career in the Navy, so I, I have been always interested in management of large-scale issues, and I think this is a large-scale issue. I have a scientific background as well. I'm an earth scientist. Although my degree is in applied mathematics, my thesis was on tsunami propagation. So obviously I'm very interested in the recent developments in the tsunami warning technology and our ability to solve that problem for, for the world. So, well, I might say one of the things in managing uh, large-scale operations in, in the military is the ability to communicate, having multiple paths, the ability to be able to use data and combine it. And that put together with understanding that the Earth is a system of systems. It all comes together. It's not just a separate a field of data points. It is, in fact, things that are coupled, biological, physical, chemical. They all come together to support the chain of life, and that's so important to our future sustainability on this planet. That's actually a real good point to emphasize again, even for the audience, the whole idea that even going back to ancient times, the vision of heaven has been reported as being a place where there are 10,000 things. A more modern interpretation has there being as many as 10,000 processes that are going on simultaneously, and you have to figure out their interrelationships. For this audience, I guess then, maybe as we get close to closing, I know there will be a lot of people very interested in learning more. Where might they go to learn more both about NOAA as well as about the Global Earth Observations work that you've talked about? I would encourage people to go to our uh, NOAA homepage, which is www.noaa.gov, uh, G-O-V, and that will lead you direct to GEOS. There will be a, a reference to GEOS, and there will certainly be a reference to all of the observing that we do to help our country and also to uh, help participate in this world system that we're setting up. It's a great place to go to, to begin learning what's going on, what's important. I wanted to, first of all, thank you very much, encourage our listeners to also investigate further on this and learn more about what this incredible organization is doing and what Vice Admiral Lautenbacher is making happen. And again, I wanted to thank you, sir, for joining us this week on Stranova. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. I've enjoyed it, and you're most kind to, to talk with me today. After hearing the interview from just moments ago, I'm sure most of our listeners are reeling themselves, not from the tragedies, but this time from the immensity of the vision Vice Admiral Lautenbacher has set forth. It seems both amazing that such a global Earth observation system of systems might actually be interconnected, put in service, and begin both saving lives and helping guide global environmental policymaking in only a 10-year lifetime. Yet, as with other amazing things, such as the U.S. interstate highway system, manned spaceflight, and the Internet, these kinds of successful strategic innovations start in a very similar manner. There is always, at the start, the need for a thorough understanding of the full system of systems, to put it in our guest terms, that make up the particular business ecosystem you are working within. The innovator may have started with a grand aim even before developing that model, but, regardless of the starting point, making the model helps provide the insight 
to see opportunities and possible business trajectories to follow to achieve any number of significant aims for the enterprise being analyzed. The next steps, of course, are setting a long-term vision based on those insights, chart a course from the present to the future, and then get moving. Is it easy to pull off? Of course not, if it's something truly innovative and far-reaching in its implications. Does it take inspiration and persistent perspiration, to paraphrase Thomas Edison, to bring it to reality? Definitely. But if it's worth it, and if you have the courage to take on the challenge, and the leadership in place to make sure all your own system of systems evolves and transforms to support your aims, you can be sure just about anything is possible. After all, as the old Chinese proverb says, a thousand-mile journey starts with a single step. And although I never asked the question, I can assure you our guest this week started his current quest in much the same way. And I, for one, am looking forward to seeing Vice Admiral Lautenbacher's grand vision come to pass and hope some of you can help him make it happen. It will take a combination of clear thinking, business innovation on many levels, major public policy initiatives throughout the world, and more than a bit of political skill. But when it does come to pass, we can all look forward to a day in the not-too-distant future when disasters like happened in the Indian Ocean back in December 2004 will never have to be experienced again. That's my reflection for this week, and thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about any of the topics in this week's show, please visit our website at www.stranova.com. And be sure to look at the current programs and resources pages for some interesting insights on our speakers and recommended links to related reference materials. If you have any comments on our show or suggestions for people to invite for future shows, please do contact us at ideas at stranova.com or leave us a short voice message on our Stranova comment line at area code 408-849-4394 or via Skype by a click from our homepage. This recording is copyright 2006 by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson thanking you for listening and looking forward to talking with you next time on Stranova.